So, you know, many of you know that, that um, Brandy and I, my wife, we've been married for uh, coming on 17 years, right? Yeah, coming on, so, yeah, that's right, yeah, thanks. Um, you can clap when we get to 20, all right? Um, we've been married for about 17 years, and we have our three children. We have Jonas, who's 15, we have Betty, who's 13, and we have Henry, who is nine. And so we're in this really uh, unique season in our life as a family. I remember early on in our marriage, and I know some of you are, some of you are in this stage now um, because you have young children. I remember early on in our marriage, we were... We were counting down the days longingly when we would be out of the diaper phase, right? Is anybody, is anybody saying those prayers right now? We just couldn't wait to be out of that phase. We couldn't wait to be, um, have the kids in school or, or have the kids out of car seats or whatever, whatever it was. We're sort of looking past where we were into what we could be and, and we're excited about that. But, and even as we traveled, I remember just thinking, we took our kids everywhere. We took our kids overseas. We took our kids on road trips to see the in-laws. I remember thinking, I just can't wait till we don't have to have diaper bags anymore. That felt like such a victory at that point. Just not to, and not to have to like hold the kids constantly as they're screaming. Um, you know, it's, it's pretty difficult to carry a fussy toddler through the slums of Kenya like we did with Henry when he was two. Um, and so I just remember thinking, uh, I can't wait till this season is over. Um, but as, as many of you know, that, that season goes by pretty quickly. And now we're in this, we're in this new season as a family. Um, and, and in some ways, we're, we're doing that same calculation in our minds, um, but really with a lot of a sort of mixture of joy and sorrow about um, this next season of life where there's not that many years where all of my children Got, probably will be living in the same house. In the next few years, our kids will be graduating high school. Um, we're looking to those moments when they'll be going to college or getting married themselves or having children of their own. And it's a unique season for us. There's a, dispre- a depressing statistic, let me just tell you. Um, and if you have children who are nearing graduation age, you're going to hate me for sharing this, but it's, it's the truth. Once your kids graduate high school, on average, once your kids graduate high school, you will have spent 93% of the in-person time that you will spend with them for the rest of their lives. 93%. And, that, and at first you're thinking, that's crazy. But then you look back, if you're, if you're an adult, you look back and think, well, how much, comparatively, how much time have I spent with my parents or a family after graduating high school? So once your kid graduates high school, you've spent 93% of your in-person time with that kid. That's just overwhelming to me when I read that. Brandy and I took a trip um, for our for our 15 year anniversary last year or in 2000 yeah last year in 2018 and during that trip we spent a lot of time so we we had crossed a milestone celebrated 15 years as husband and wife so it was a, it was a big deal for us and we spent a lot of time on that trip um, kind of talking through um, this this unique time in our lives and really putting the brackets on it of this very important decade for our family. So at that point, it was 2018 to 2028. We, we looked at those numbers and thought, there's going to be a lot happening in this decade for us. This is one of the most important decades for us as a family, especially for us as, uh, as parents. And so we started thinking, what, what all is going to happen in this next critical decade for us? And we realized, um, God willing, all of our children will graduate high school within that decade. God willing, um, we will celebrate 20 years service to this church within that decade. We'll celebrate 25 years of marriage within that decade. Um, In all likelihood, some of our children may have children within that decade. Like this, a decade doesn't seem 
that long, right? Decades kind of fly by at this stage in life and realizing this decade, this is a big decade. This is a critical decade for our family. And this realization for us as we were having these conversations and thinking about all the things that are going to happen um, in all likelihood in this next 10-year period, it, it provoked a lot of conversations about, among other things, stewardship. And financial stewardship, sure, and, and actually Chris Mercer and I were having this conversation this morning, but uh, yeah, we were thinking about financial stewardship, but even more than that, we were thinking about the stewardship of, of our precious time during that decade. How are we going to spend our time? How are we going to invest our time in our kids? How are we going to steward um, our discipleship opportunities, not only for ourselves, but also for our children in this critical phase of their life? How are we stewarding the the vision that God has uh, given for our family? How are we embracing that vision and communicating that vision? And, and I want you to know, make no mistake about it, if you are a family and you have children, you are communicating a very clear vision to your family about what you value and about what's, in, what's unimportant, whether you know it or not. So they are picking up a very clear vision from you. It just matters a great deal what kind of vision you're relaying to them. And in all these things, even more important than all these things, and really in all these things, um, how, how we are to steward the gospel in this next, in this next season. How are we to steward um, the good news that, in, in Paul's language, has been entrusted to us in this unique season of life? What does that look like for us to invest this message of the gospel, um, this story? How are we to invest our faith into our family, in our community? What does this really look like to produce results for the coming generations? I've been thinking a lot about stewardship. And if you've been with us for a while, as we've been reading through and going through the Gospel of Luke, Luke has been talking a lot about stewardship, about stewardship of money, about stewardship of time, about stewardship of our faith. And here in Luke 19 that we'll get to this morning, Jesus is sort of getting at the heart of our gospel stewardship and also giving us a warning of the consequences of mismanaging that investment. So let's just jump right in here in Luke 19. We'll start in verse 11. It says, as they heard these things, he, meaning Jesus, began uh, to tell them a parable. Because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed, that, that, this is the crowd around him and especially his followers and disciples, because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. And he said, therefore, he told them this story. He says, a nobleman uh, went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then to return. And then calling ten of his servants uh, together with him, he gave them ten minas and said to them, Engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to rule over us. But yet he returned, having received the kingdom, and ordered these servants back together to whom he had given the money to be called that he might know what they gained by doing their business. Verse 16. The first came before him saying, Lord, your, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, well done, good servant, because you've been faithful in very little. You shall have authority now over ten cities. And the second came saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, uh, and you now are over five cities. And then another came saying, Lord, here, here is your mina. Here is what you gave me. 
which I kept laid away in a handkerchief because I was afraid of you. I, I knew you were a severe man, that you take what you do not deposit, that you reap what you do not sow. And he said to him, the king, the nobleman said, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was, and he's asking this as a question, a sort of rhetorical question. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Well, why then did you not put my money in the bank and at my coming might have at least collected some interest? In verse 24, and he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has ten. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. And he said, I tell you, to everyone who has, more will be given. But to the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Let me pray for us again. God, speak to us through this, uh, through this difficult passage. God, I pray that we would hear from you. I pray that we would be uh, convicted this morning, but also encouraged by what you have entrusted to us. God, help us to be faithful stewards. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So if you were here with us a couple of weeks ago, this story really comes on the heels of Jesus's interaction with Zacchaeus. So this is sort of the height of Jesus's earthly ministry at this point. This, the, 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 Jesus is making his way to Jerusalem. He's making his way to the cross. They don't know what's about to happen yet, even though he's been dropping hits all along the way. He's making his way to Jerusalem. His popularity is at its near peak at this point. Crowds and crowds of people are surrounding him wherever he goes. He's a, a huge celebrity in this area. Uh, fervor is swelling around him. Uh, especially with his followers who think that, that he is the Messiah who is about to overthrow this oppressive, this oppressive Roman government and will, will reinstate God's people, Israel, as uh, the rightful authority in power. And Jesus, at the end of his interaction with Zacchaeus to the crowd, he clarifies, um, he says, this is why I've come for you. I have come to seek and to save the lost which was kind of scary news for everybody because they didn't know they were lost. They didn't, know they, needed, uh, they didn't know they needed to be found. They didn't know they needed saving. But he makes clear that I have come here for you. I have come, I'm looking for you, I am pursuing you, and I am your only hope for salvation. So this is all the backdrop of this passage today. He's still there in Jericho. And this is right on the heels of his interaction with Zacchaeus. All of this is in play when uh, in Luke 11 it says that they, they all supposed that the kingdom of God was about to appear immediately. So that's what's on their minds. They are people ready to embrace this man who will be their king. They are ready to be on the ruling side of this political system. But they've really got it all wrong. They've sort of missed the point all along of what Jesus is saying as that suffering servant. They've missed the point of what it takes for him to find them and to save them. And Jesus knows it. He knows what's in their hearts. He knows what's in their heads. And he knows that they don't know what's coming. He knows that they aren't anticipating the crucifixion. They aren't anticipating this brutal end to his earthly ministry. They're not anticipating his long departure that will precede his return. And so Jesus responds to them with this story. A nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom, and then he would return. 
And so the story is pretty straightforward. This nobleman gathers these servants together. It actually talks about gathering 10 servants together, but we only really hear about three of the servants. So he gathers these servants together. Um, and to one servant that he gave 10 uh, minas to, and a mina, just to put this in context, is about three months wages. So um, approximately $15,000 for the median income in Texas today, roughly, right? So he's giving these guys, and he's giving all of them the same exact amount. He's giving them about 15,000 bucks. And he says, I want you to do business while I'm gone. I want, you to, I want you to be active while I'm gone. And I want you to bring a return on this investment, bring a return of what I'm entrusting to you. And so he gives one ten. He gives one five and so on. Or he, he, gives, he gives all of them uh, this mina and we see how these servants return. One brings in a significant investment in return and one brings in very little. The nobleman in this story finally uh, goes away. He's going, as he said, to claim his title, his rightful title as king. A delegation follows him. They're protesting him as king. And yet this nobleman is successful and he receives his right as king and he returns to his people. I'll spare you the, the ancient history here, but Jesus is actually retelling a story that had just happened in Jericho, in that area, uh, just, just before he was there. So one of Herod's king, one of Herod's sons, Herod had died, and one of Herod's sons was there to, wanted to inherit uh, Herod's title as king and inherit his land uh, and kingdom, um, but he didn't get it automatically. And so he had, to, he had to leave his country, he had to go to Rome, he had to go to Caesar to plead his case. He wanted to be king. But his story was unsuccessful. He was unsuccessful. Caesar did not grant him that title. He was a sort of wannabe king. And Jesus is turning the story around. He's giving them a kind of new ending to the story. He's making them rethink what this is all about. This king will return victorious. This king, he is going away. But as he goes, he wants to see how the servants invest what he's entrusted to them. What return have they gotten on what has been entrusted to them? What have they been doing all along, right? The king is wondering. The king is looking at his servants saying, I've been gone. Now I'm back. What have you been up to? What have you been up to? Church, what have you been up to? What have we been up to? One servant invested his 15,000 bucks. He came back with 150,000 bucks. And the king says, for you, I'm going to let you rule over 10 cities. Another took his 15,000 bucks and he turned it into 75,000 bucks. And he says to him, you're going to rule over five cities. And then one of the servants came. He doesn't go through all 10, but one of the servants that he called to himself, it says he, he hid the 15,000 in the mattress, right? He did nothing with it. He hid it away. And so he had no return to show the king when he returned. And the servant's response makes clear. He didn't, he didn't really understand the master. He didn't know the character of the master. He says, I kept it hid away in a handkerchief because I was afraid of you. I knew you were a severe man, but yet the king was not a severe man, right? The king was a generous man. He was a generous king. And to the servant with uh, 150,000, he made him ruler over 10. To the 75,000, a ruler over five. But because this third servant hid his gift away, the king took even what was given to him away. And gave it to the one with ten. The king condemns this third, third servant because he didn't even gain a modest return, a modest interest even in the bank. Playing it safe, he didn't even do that. He just ignored it. 
I'm not going to take any risk. I'm not going to do anything. I'm not going to do what you called me to, which is the only command he gives them as he's departing. And he says, engage in business. Get busy. You've been entrusted with this gift. Get busy with it. The story may actually seem familiar to uh, many of us because it's very similar to the parable of the talents. Some of you guys know that parable in the Gospel of Matthew, the parable of the talents. Kind of a same story where a, where a king or a nobleman is giving these different servants different gifts, but there are some pretty significant distinctions between these two stories uh, that Jesus has told over the course of his ministry. In the parable of the talents, for example, the man in the story, he gives his servants each a different number of talents different amounts of money, as it were. And it says, according to his ability. And yet here the nobleman gives each of these servants the same amount. And so we're asking our question, what's, what's different about these stories? What do, these, what, do, what do the talents represent? What do the minas in this story represent? In the parable of the talents, the, the commentators agree, the talents represent uh, the different gifts and different abilities that God's given each of us. Because each of us in this room, we're wired differently, we're made differently, we have different talents, we have different gifts. And yet here in this story, God is giving the same thing in equal measure. This nobleman, this king is giving the same thing in equal measure to all of his servants. So what's going on? This Mina. Now, clearly, we have different gifts and ability. Each of us have, we have different health concerns. We have different opportunities. We have different parents. We were born to different parents. We were born uh, in, in different times or in different places or under different circumstances. And yet, there is this, this great leveler of people, there is this great unifier of people, there is this great equity built into the world where God offers the same forgiveness to us all, the same good news to us all, the same mercy to us all. No matter, no matter what your story, no matter what uh, past you have, no matter what your experiences, God has given you all the grace that you need. He extended his mercy to you every bit as he's extended the mercy to the next person sitting with you. The gospel is the great leveler. It's this mina, this one thing that he's given, like, that he's presenting to all of the people there, all of the servants. He's saying, here is this thing. What will you do with it? What will you do with it? We have the same forgiveness. We have the same grace. The question is, how are we investing it? How are we investing the good news of the gospel? Well, one writer put it like this, this. The parable in Matthew, the parable of the talents, it reminds us that we all have different gifts and abilities, but the parable in Luke reminds us that we all have this one basic task, that of living out our faith, of bringing the gospel to bear on the world. So how are you doing? How are you doing? And if you know the story of the gospel, you know the message of the gospel that Jesus says, you are lost. You needed to be found. You needed to be saved. And I've come to find you and to save you and bring you to myself. That's good news for you. You can be forgiven. You can be new. You can be transformed. You, you can, there's an answer to your questions. There is, there is medicine for your shame. Jesus came and did for us what we could never do for ourselves. He was the king who went away and came back victorious for us. That's the gospel. That's the good news. That's preached to everybody. And Jesus says, what have you done with it? 
What have you done with it? How have you invested that message? We have, in fact, been entrusted with the gospel. This is the same language exactly that Paul uses later on in the New Testament. For example, in 1 Thessalonians, in 1 Timothy, he says in both of those places, we are entrusted with the gospel. This is something that has been given to us to be, to, for something to be done with it. You may remember the, in the Old Testament as God is talking to Abraham and he's giving him this promise. This sort of a key facet of our faith. God is saying, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to make you a great nation. Why? Do you remember? So that you can be a blessing. God says, I'm going to, I'm going to pour all this grace on you. But it's not just for you. You're not the end user. In fact, there is no end user. It just keeps rippling through history. Unless you hold it back. Unless you hold back what God has done in your life. Unless you ignore it. Unless you keep it in the dark closets of your life. It's an issue of stewardship, right? What are you doing with what's been entrusted to you? One, one writer put it like this. I think I might have this on the screen. Kent Hughes. We are to multiply our spiritual capital, invest the gospel, increase the yield of the good news of salvation through Jesus Christ. This is not a matter of gifts as the parable of the talents, but a matter of investment. You all have heard the good news. I just said it to you. How will you respond to it? Some of you have embraced the good news uh, many years ago, even as a young child. What have you done with it? What does this mean for you? What does this mean for us as a people? Let me give you just a few um, thoughts and questions for you to consider uh, as we wrap up. Here's the first question. I'll have this on the screen. How are you investing the good news? And maybe this is a whole new concept to you. Maybe this is a whole new idea for you, but I'm going to pose this question for you to consider. How are you investing the good news? The good news that you have received, the good news that has been offered to you. Have you experienced forgiveness? Have you experienced truth? Have you, have you tasted and seen that the Lord is good? What does it mean to invest that, that experience, that story? What does it mean for us to invest that in the world for returns? Let me give you just a few examples. Uh, here's number one, real straightforward. Open your mouth and tell somebody about Jesus. Isn't that so easy? Easier said than done, right? Open your mouth and tell somebody about the good news. Tell your kids the good news. Tell your coworkers or your family or your friends or your neighbors or whoever. Have a conversation. Take a risk with the capital that's been entrusted to you. Have a conversation. There, there are, and we all know this in this room, if we're honest with ourselves, there is a there is a universal, this is true in all cultures, across history, in all places, there is a universal ache for meaning. Why am I here? What are we here for? Is there any truth in the universe? How can I, how can I make sense of this sort of wrongness in myself? Is it through blood sacrifices? Is it through this rite or ritual? How do, we, how do we do that, right? Those things are happening in all cultures, have always happened in all time. People ache to understand what they're all about and what this universe is all about. So, so I want you to, as you're just living your life and you see people, they have that same ache. 
It may be buried or it may be right there on the surface, but they are wondering, what is this really all about? How do I make sense of this world? How do I live in this world? We have a story to tell, right? We have a story to tell that we can point to. There is truth. There are answers. There are purpose. There's a a purpose for you. There's, There's relief in this world from your pain. Open your mouth and point to Jesus. Here's here's another thing. Offer forgiveness to someone who's caused you pain. Offer forgiveness to someone who's hurt you. Give, Give people a second chance. Do you see how that's sowing the seeds of gospel into the world? Give someone a second chance and then give them a third chance and then give them a fourth chance. Present the gospel to them. Offer the forgiveness that was offered you. Let, let, this, let this ocean of forgiveness that was poured over you in the gospel now cascade out into your life with the people that have hurt you or the people that have caused you pain. Sow those seeds. Invest that capital of forgiveness as it was entrusted to you. Again, not easy. It's not easy to forgive. It's not easy to absorb that pain and bring it to the Lord. It's much easier to let that fester or to be directed to the person who hurt you. But forgive as you have been forgiven. Here's another thing. Give your time and money to God's work in the world. Give your time and your money to God's work in the world. Reject the empty temptation, and it's a huge temptation, but it's empty. Reject the huge temptation to to direct all of your resources back to yourself. To direct all of your resources to your own happiness or to your own security or to your own advancement or to your own personal fulfillment. Reject that temptation. It's empty, as many of you know from experience. When you just invest in yourself, when you are pouring into yourself, when everything you do is really about you, it doesn't take long on that timeline to realize how empty that path is. So turn it around. Invest in God's work in the world. Write a check. Get a passport. I was, I was talking to a, a, a pastor a few years ago, and he was talking about, um, and this is pretty extreme, but their church was very much like... Um, Uh, ministry-centric overseas. And so part of their membership process, many of you have been a a member of this church, part of their membership process was a passport application. Just like, get ready, right? We We want you to be prepared to where God might call you in this world, right? So write a check, get a passport, get on a plane. Disrupt your schedule. Give your time and your energy and your money to God's work. Um, Pursue opportunities here at Redeemer. Pursue opportunities with our partners here in Brenham. Pursue opportunities to to give yourself over to work uh, in places that God is moving throughout the world. I mean, you even heard us talk about working in Kenya, which we've done for years and years and years. How are you stewarding what God has given you? The gospel, the good news of the gospel, how are you stewarding that? How are you investing it? What returns are you seeing on your investment? Here's point number two. Doing nothing is not doing nothing. Let me say that again. Doing nothing is not doing nothing, right? 
This is essentially the case with this last servant that he, he thought, I, I'm, I'm worried about this king. I'm worried about this judge. He's a severe guy. I don't know how he's going to relate to me or react to me. I'm just going to hide it. I'm just going to put it away and forget about it and ignore it, right? And he was called a wicked servant. One writer talked about this, the, the, this New Testament scholar. He says, the smallest gift must be put to good use. In the Christian life, we do not stand still. We use our gifts and make progress or we lose what we have had. Now, you know this is true like in the financial world. If you don't invest your money, you are losing money because of inflation, right? This is basic economics 101. I think about this a lot as it relates to relationships. Like, if you, even if, you, even if you, your relationship with your spouse is just so good on your wedding day, right? It's so beautiful. You're so happy. You're so excited. Like, how could it get any better than that, right? And then if you do nothing to invest in that relationship, what happens? The weeds grow. The wheels fall off, right? Doing nothing in a relationship is not doing nothing. It's doing damage to a relationship. Think about it with your kids. You, you don't just get your kids to a good spot and they think, well, we're good, we're done, right? You invest and you invest and you invest. Doing nothing is not doing nothing. And that's what this servant was uh, condemned for. Now, now, don't push Jesus' analogy too far. This is, this is not an illustration of a person um, losing the salvation that Christ offered them. This is a parable about a servant, a wicked person who misunderstood and was disobedient. He misunderstood the character of the king and he was disobedient to the commands of the king. He didn't understand his gift at all and he didn't know the king at all. It's clear from the story. And some of you maybe, some of you maybe have misunderstood the king completely. And you, you operate with him, your relationship with him to the extent that you even have one is really a relationship based on fear that you're just worried about this angry judge who's going to punish you as opposed to understanding that you are, you are in relationship or there is a relationship offered to you with a very generous king, a very loving father. But if you relate to him as a as a judge who is just there to hurt you, you've really misunderstood him. And those, those seeds of the gospel, those seeds of the good news, to use another analogy in the New Testament, they, they shrivel and die among the rocks and the weeds of inaction. Doing nothing is not doing nothing. None of us have the same opportunities or the gifts, but all of us, all of us who believe we have a story to share. We have forgiveness to offer. We have hope to give. Doing nothing is actively working against the work of the gospel in the world. Okay, you hear that? Doing nothing with what's been entrusted to you is actively working against the gospel work in the world. Here's the last thing. I'll end with this. How how will you respond? How are you responding to a generous king? There's, there's several characters in this story, right? As you're reading these character, as you're reading the story, a few characters emerge. You have, uh, number one, these, these servants who were entrusted with this gift and they made a return on it. There was at least this one servant that the, the writer refers to as a wicked servant who was entrusted with the same gift but did nothing with it. 
And then there was this third group in the story of these, these other citizens here who protested against this coming king. They, they said, we don't want him to rule over us. We don't want to bend our knee to this guy. Some who were entrusted with the good news and those who couldn't stand for a generous king. One writer says, and you see this here in verse 27, as for these enemies of mine, this is, this is such severe language, as for these enemies of mine, these ones who, who protested uh, the coronation of the king, who didn't want him to rule over them, says, as for these enemies of mine, they are called enemies, who do not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. This is serious language. One New Testament scholar says, we may be horrified by the fierceness of this conclusion, and beneath this grim imagery is an equally grim fact. The fact that the coming of Jesus into the world, the return of Jesus, puts every man to a test. It forces a decision. It forces a response. It's a matter of life and death, literally. This language is equally vivid to the uh, related parable in the Gospel of Matthew where, where Jesus says, cast this, this is more sort of clearer language to maybe what some of us are familiar with, cast this worthless servant into outer darkness, into the place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Who are you in this story? Where have you found yourself in this story? How do you, how do you respond to the coming king? Will you invest the gospel in your community? Will you see fruitful return and be rewarded as the king returns? Or will you keep this good news that you have heard hid away, ignored, forgotten, pushed to the dark, and be punished? Or, or worse still, a protester, one who refuses to submit to this reigning king, this generous king, the context of this parable is clear from the very first verse in verse 11. It says, because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. That's why he told them this story, to correct their misunderstanding of what they were really getting into. He was also calling them to this period of struggle, this period of suffering, this period of work. It wasn't just, it, Jesus wasn't just marching into Jerusalem to make them his, his heirs of this earthly kingdom. He was saying, you don't know what's coming. I've got enemies. The kingdom is not what you expect. Certainly is not what Jesus' first century followers expected. They, they envisioned this powerful, victorious king. Grant freedom to the Jews. But in fact, Jesus is a king who, who, who departed. Who left his rightful kingdom to receive his rightful title as king. He had to pass through death. He had to pass through death with enemies all around him to emerge victorious through the resurrection. He is a king returning. He is a king who has given his followers a job to do. He has entrusted us with a gift, a responsibility. How are we investing it? What will you have to show the king when he returns? What will you have to show the king? And how will you respond to him? Let me pray.